Think back to last Christmas. Did your family embrace the true meaning of Christmas by serving and helping those around you? Or did the commercialism or Santa Claus creep in again like it always seems to in December? Well, this year, do something different by adding Soft Enough for a King to your Christmas traditions. Soft Enough for a King provides families with an activity to do together throughout the Christmas season, the spirit of service and giving. Filling the manger with strips of straw, each strip representing an act of kindness to others, reminds us to help others. This product contains a handmade wooden manger, paper straw with a space to record acts of kindness, a Christ child doll for Christmas morning, a poem, and a lovely illustrated picture book. In the tradition of classic tales like Little Drummer Boy, it tells the story of a Bethlehem innkeeper's son who helps those in need while preparing the manger for a special baby on that first Christmas Eve. This really is a new twist on an old tradition that dates back hundreds of years. Order yours today at www.softenough.com and may the Lord warm your shoulders this Christmas season. And now, onto what you've been waiting to hear. Robert Kirby, welcome to Mormon Discussion. How are you today? I'm doing good. How are you? Doing excellent. Glad to have you on. Uh, Brother Kirby, I think everybody who listens to my podcast is going to know, uh, know who you are and what you do. You work at the Salt Lake Tribune and, and I thought maybe I would just give you a moment to just share a brief bio of, of, you know, any background about you you want to tell, um, and what it is that you do at the Salt Lake Tribune before we jump into, to the main portion of the interview. Okay. Um, I was born to a, uh, into a military family. My parents were from Utah, but I was raised Mormon all over the world. Uh, I think I lived in 15 homes before we moved to Salt Lake when I was in high school. So I went to three high schools, three junior highs, and four elementary schools. And the one um, consistent part of my life, in addition to my family, was the church. You know, we spent a lot of time in branches and things like that. Came back to Utah, um, became a criminal, petty one. Um, spent some time in the National Guard. I um, served a mission eventually. I came home from that and, and became a police officer. This was at a time when there wasn't such a thing as a computer and you could do background checks that way. Otherwise, it never would have happened. And I um, married a, a woman, a sister from the mission that I was in, Uruguay. We were both missionaries there. Um, settled down. Uh, just basically started writing as a way to sort of make police work a little easier on myself. It soon became apparent that it wasn't what I should be doing. I started looking around for other things to do. I was taking night classes at BYU and ran into a professor who encouraged me to write. And just one thing led to another. I got hired by a little free newspaper in Utah County and I worked my way up the food chain, newspaper food chain. Gotcha. Gotcha. So I got um, several emails from listeners about questions they wanted me to ask you. And, and about a half dozen or so uh, wrote me, and, and I guess there's a rumor going that you're still wearing the one-piece garment. <laughs> Is, something about it was that still really comfortable for you? or <laughs> no, I'm old enough to have remembered them, but, I, but no, I don't wear the one-piece garment. Okay, so we can put that rumor to rest. <laughs> good, good. I thought I would throw that out there. Um, I do want to ask you, in your childhood, you talk about moving around a lot, and you talk about... Um, you know, and, and I think most of us can kind of imagine in that kind of a childhood where we're moving about what all that entails as far as challenges and things. But but I want to ask you in terms of the church, and you said the church was kind of a, a very dependable thing for you growing up, but did you grow up in a very orthodox home or orthodox ward, or or did you grow up with a very flexible, liberal kind of, you know, ward or family? Um, my parents were very orthodox. At the same time, they didn't discourage the expression of concerns or, or those sorts of things. I never got the impression from my parents that um, the church or questioning the church was taboo. They didn't always have great answers. You know, when I was a kid, I had those questions. Uh, being the sort of kid that I was, uh, I suffer from attention deficit disorder and a little bit of bipolarism and some impulse control issues as a kid. So I was a handful. Uh, but I remember asking my mom questions about the church and my dad as well. I asked my mom, well, if um, Heavenly Father is Jesus' father, who's Heavenly Father's father? And my mom said, well, it would obviously be Jesus' grandpa. And so she would answer questions like that. <laughs> uh, that's good. But um, so they, they were Orthodox. I got an Orthodox upbringing 
in places uh, where there weren't a lot of Mormons. We lived in Spain for three years, for example, and a very small branch, and everybody was needed. So there wasn't a lot of concern over correlation, per se, that I recall. Gotcha, gotcha. I, uh, your sense of humor, I, I, first off, I know you have lots of listeners, and, and I see lots of your articles. In fact, I'm sharing them a lot of times on Facebook and other places and social media. I've read a lot of your work, and you have a really unique sense of humor that tends to kind of pick out these things within Mormonism and other other aspects of life too. And and I just wondered this this kind of unique sense of humor that you've got. Um, is this something you've always had as a kid, or was this something kind of that later on in life, as as you kind of realize some of the paradoxes that are out there, that kind of came on, or or what do you attribute to your development of your sense of humor? Well, I it was a survival mechanism for me. You know, when you're in the new kid every year in school. And you have the problems that I had, and there were, you know, they wouldn't let you have alcohol. I had to come up with a way of coping, and humor seemed to work best for me. It wasn't always appreciated, but as I say, it, it's what worked best for me. And uh, I mean, I take medications now to help me with <laughs> my impulse control and things like that. But um, humor really was my refuge during those times when, I mean, when you're in the military. If your dad isn't getting orders to move somewhere else, your friends' dads are. So relationships are very short-lived, uh, and you don't have those to fall back on outside of your family. And so you find ways to cope, especially if you're troubled to begin with. You mentioned kind of leaving the police force and, and taking up writing and, and getting into a smaller newspaper. You end up at the Salt Lake Tribune where you are today. What What's your current position with the Tribune? I'm a... I'm the fool in residence. Okay. Okay. And I, I'd be curious, I'm sure my listeners would be curious too, how you go from writing for a small you know, newspaper and, and, and doing that and obviously hard work and, and the things you're saying and the way you're saying it obviously is connecting with people. But can you give us maybe a little bit more of how you go from from starting out in that business to being with the Tribune and, and writing articles that I think you know have a very large readership um, how did that uh, transformation take place? I didn't go into writing to become a Mormon satirist or humorist. Um, I went in to just to learn how to write. This newspaper offered me a, a column to talk, you know, where I wrote about police officers and why they do the things that they do. And the idea was to parlay this into on-the-job training on how to be a writer. And I hadn't been working for this little free newspaper, which is no longer in existence, although not because anything I did. Uh, I just started poking fun at the local culture, and uh, I wrote a column one day about how there are only five types of Mormons in the entire world, and that really upset the publisher of the paper, but everybody liked it. Um, they enjoy, I found out that they enjoyed humor like this about the culture they were part of or trapped in and wanted more of it, and so I started doing it more and more. Eventually, that newspaper didn't like what I was doing. They fired me in the Tribune picked me up. Uh, a year later, I worked for a little while for the Provo Daily Herald, but the Tribune sort of noticed what I was doing about Mormons and the, the cultural divide in Utah, and so they snatched me up. I've been there ever since. You you seem really comfortable poking uh, at Mormonism while also being a member, and, and you kind of come across as, you know, it just seems to you like, hey, you think this is fair game. Um, can I give you maybe just the question of, of what gives you what gives you that kind of freedom you feel like, okay, I'm a Mormon, I'm I'm going to church, and I'm seeing all these things within my ward or the culture at large, and, and to feel comfortable enough to kind of poke at those. I think there's lots of people who get in a tizzy over those things. There's other people who just feel like it's almost like it's sacred ground that you really can't go there, and yet you seem to, to be very comfortable kind of pushing those buttons. Uh, any thoughts into what gives you that, uh, that easiness of doing that? Well, I think human beings are fair game. For, for humorous. Um, somebody's got to remind the emperor that he doesn't have any pants on. Right. And it's, I don't look at it as a calling per se, but this is, this is frankly the kind of Mormon that I am. I am very comfortable being myself. Um, and if it bothers other people, that's a bonus because they'll leave me alone. <laughs> uh, for example, if you say something at church that somebody doesn't like, uh, they're more apt to stay away from you. So it's kind of a social distinction tool. Um, but there are things that are sacred or that are, that shouldn't be uh, considered 
a subject for humor. Everybody has different ideas what, about what that means, but the truth is, is that it isn't really what's funny. It's about what you can sell um, in your column. So if you want to start trampling people's sacred cows, uh, you better be willing to take the um, backlash for that. On the other hand, uh, they're fair game about their, their behavior regarding their sacred cows. In other words, I think it's good that we have sacred cows, um, but our behavior as human beings often leads us to do things or believe things about ourselves in connection with our sacred cows that turns us into idiots. Right, right. Um, can I ask you, what are some of those sacred cows that uh, that you feel automatically are hands-off when covering things within Mormonism? Well, they're the same as they would be for any other faith, frankly. I don't make fun of temple ordinances, for example, or the sacrament. Um, but I, I give the same uh, concessions to Catholics and Mass and other religions and their sacred ordinances. Uh, there's just no percentage in it to make fun of those sorts of things because it's like making fun of somebody's spouse you, you'll just it's not funny to them what i'm looking for is the ground that's common between myself and my audience where we can all have a good laugh about ourselves so this is the kind of the question i really wanted to ask the most of of you which is that your your approach in the newspaper and in the articles that you write seems very funny satirical like you pointed out, but also very nonchalant kind of in, in the way you go about it. And yet I seem to observe in you, and maybe I'm, I'm wrong, but I, I think I'm onto something, a very thoughtful, deep thinking mind at work. And I feel like underneath all the humor that you obviously are very aware of your faith's history and its accompanying paradoxes and complexities. Would you mind talking for a moment about your study of Mormonism and, and like what kind of books you've read, uh, what are some of the things within Mormonism that you think about? What are some of the paradoxes that that you sometimes maybe sit back and try to try to kind of walk down that logical road and see if you can put the pieces together? What kind of things in Mormonism do you gravitate towards in that sense of the way? I um I've I've studied uh, a lot about Mormonism. Obviously, you can't be in a church for sixty some odd years and not know things about it either because you hear them in church or from uh, ex Mormons or anti Mormons. Uh, so I was aware of a lot of those things long before I got out of high school. I mean, I have three grandfathers, great-great-great-grandfathers, who are named on federal indictments for the Mountain Meadows Massacre. Uh, doesn't faze me a bit. It has nothing to do with me. Uh, but I can look at that and say, you know, well, we did something stupid there. It was wrong and horrible. Uh, but it, it has nothing to do with my re current relationship with the church. And um, so I guess I, it was because I never really believed that we were infallible people led by infallible leaders. Well, we obviously make mistakes just like everybody else. In fact, we are just everybody else. Um, we're just the Mormon version of it. And you mentioned, you know, you can't go this many years in the church without knowing these things. But I think the reality is that looking at the general membership, I think many of them don't know these things. And and. You seem to be very aware of your of your faith's history, and so I think at least on some end, some credit to you that somewhere along the way you've taken time to kind of study some of these things out. Are there any specific books that you know you can maybe think of that that have kind of impacted you as far as your awareness of church history or or different uh, you know where have you kind of gained that information? Um, I read old newspapers. That's all I do. I used to have a hobby and a life and things like that, but these days I. I read old newspapers from newspaper archives, and you can see a lot of this um, church history being uh, bandied about in, in the Salt Lake Tribune in its early days. Uh, I've read Sunstone, uh, a lot of different LDS history books, uh, Will Bagley's Blood of the Prophets, uh, and the other books on Mount Meadows Massacre. But the, those things never really troubled me all that much because that's not why I am or I'm not a Mormon. Uh, those every faith has those concerns. I mean, you look at the the uh, similarities between mainstream Christianity and Mormonism. Joseph Smith, the prophet, uh, Jesus Christ. Not that they're equal by any means, but would Christianity have died out as just another religion if Paul hadn't come along and promoted it as well as he did? Well, would Mormonism have died out if Brigham Young hadn't come along and been the great organizer that he was? So everywhere I look, you see those human mistakes all over the place. And so those don't really trouble me because I, I'm a cynic and I happen to believe everybody's bad. 
It's just a question of degree. The surprise for me isn't that we screwed up. It's that we haven't screwed up even bigger. Okay. I, uh, I'm curious then you, you talk about how these things really didn't bother you. And, and as I read your articles, I, I feel like I, I say, I, I read your articles. And I say that guy's like me. And what I mean by that is it looks like from the way in which you challenge us as Mormons to look at what we do culturally and to laugh at ourselves. I would have also guessed that at some point in your life that you had really wrestled with Mormonism too. And some of your articles kind of, at least in my mind, the way I'm reading it, hint at that. But you're saying in some ways that these issues never really challenged you. Um, can I ask you, have, have you ever really had to wrestle with Mormonism in the way that – so my listeners are made up, and I know I'm rambling. My listeners are made up of people who really – struggle with faith and they encounter the history, they encounter the paradoxes, they can't make these things fit. And, and some of them are walking away. Some of them are trying to make it work, but it, it causes a lot of angst and, and anxiety in their lives. And I'm just curious if you've ever had that wrestle or, and I, and I've interviewed people along these lines too, where, yeah, they're aware of this stuff, but it just truly really hasn't bothered them. Um, where do you kind of fall on that? Uh, to, I would, I'd be lying if I said that I've never wrestled with the church. Um, I mean, you're aware, and most of your listeners are probably aware, too, that I, I'm the only one in my family that goes to the local ward. My wife left the church a number of years ago. She is a very intelligent woman, and I respect her opinion and her decision to do that. Um, did it cause us problems? Of course it did. Um, but we eventually came to terms with it and decided that being good was more important than being right, and that we still loved each other, and we could have a great marriage despite that. Now, during that time, I had to ask myself, you know, what do I believe and, and what benefit am I getting out of Mormonism? I wasn't to the point where I was willing to trade one form of craziness for another, if you will, um, because every group has that. I was more interested in the crazy that I knew than in the crazy I didn't. <laughs> I can relate to that. <laughs> um, but I also really liked being Mormon. I mean, there's a lot of advantages to it um, that resonate with me. I don't expect that they resonate with everyone. But one of the things that I didn't want to do was to end up bitter and angry so that all I ever did was um, damn the relationship that failed me. Um, because, frankly, I didn't think that it did fail me. I mean, I've had friends leave the church. Uh, one of my friends, one of my closer friends, said once that um, finding out the church wasn't true was akin to his wife cheating on him. And uh, which is a fairly good analogy, because a, a lot of people who do find this out uh, feel betrayed by the church for not letting them in on the secret a long time ago. But that shouldn't lead people to do some of the things that other people have done. Uh, anger and bitterness are just the skanks you run off with to get even um, when you feel cheated on. And I never got to I was never at that point where everything had to be true. I conceded that some things weren't true. More things in the future might not be true. Uh, it's a church of transition. What's the point of having a living prophet if it isn't going to change over time? And uh, so I don't know. I don't know why things bother other people that they don't that don't bother me. Uh, long story short, everybody has to wrestle with it on our own. In general terms, though, I will say that Mormons tend to be raised as if faith in God was a science, and it's not. At least I don't believe that it is. It's more akin to an art form. And art appreciation, as you well know, is dependent upon the individual who's regarding it. And you can find ways to make things, to see the beauty in things, as long as you don't close off your mind with anger and bitterness. So I sit in church and I can, uh, as the speakers get up and sit back down, I can tell myself, well, that was nice. Oh, that was crappy. And it doesn't change how I feel about my surroundings. I, uh, the first time I met you, you don't, you know, you didn't know me at the time because you didn't know who I was, but I went to a fair Mormon conference a couple of years ago and, and moderated a session there and, and you were kind of the keynote speaker in the middle to kind of lighten the mood and, and to kind of uh, break up the monotony of, of those kinds of uh, conferences. And you gave, I don't know, you talked for probably a half an hour or so and it was, it was, one funny thing after the other of kind of poking at LDS culture. And and here you have a room full of apologists. These are all guys who think they've got the answers to the questions anytime someone else has a question. And yet you stood up in this room and you looked at everybody and you said, you know, every single one of you in this room, you believe something this very moment, at least one thing that isn't true. And I, I thought, 
what a great statement to kind of help us all kind of look in the mirror and say, you know, whether we think the church is false, whether we think the church is true, whether we look at the information and say the only reasonable conclusion is this or that, the fact of the matter, as, you're, as you pointed out then, is that we're all humans, and because we're all humans, even when we think we're right, we're wrong probably a, a whole lot of the time. Oh, sure. Um, yeah, your thoughts maybe just on human nature and, and for those who are struggling to put things together, maybe just the realization that, that it's, it's messy and not to assume anything, uh, f- with certainty. Well, it, it is a messy business. Um, and you can get tripped up believing that it's all black and white. Something is either right or it's wrong. Um, there's a lot of discretion uh, in those things. I mean, as far as I know, the only two real most important commandments are to love God and love your fellow man, and everything is a supporting element to those things. But to to be able to sit down and get people to rethink their ideas takes a little bit of doing because you have to be able to get the get what you're saying across to them in a way that they're willing to sit down and read it. And that's where humor comes in as a kind of an important uh, tool when it comes to discussing people's beliefs and showing them where they may be off track a little bit. In your articles, Brother Kirby, you you never really come out and say, hey, the church has to change on this or it needs to do that or I wish it would, you know, other than being kind of funny and saying, hey, I wish they'd, you know, call me as the word librarian or whatever, whatever those little things are that you put in the article, you never really seem to d- demand that Mormonism change and state what those changes are. But it also seems like your articles at least to me, they come across as you using your sense of humor to help us kind of think about the way we do things and maybe to maybe push to push a little bit for us to kind of say, hey, is this really working? And if it isn't, can we can we adjust a little bit? Do you do you try to use your humor intentionally to to kind of promote change within the church? Is that is that a fair question to ask? Yeah, I, I don't know that I think of it as change in the church as much as I think of it as change in people's attitudes about certain things. Um, for example, uh, would I care or would it bother me tremendously if I found out that my bishop was gay or my bishop, you know, who was called was gay? And I have to say, no, it wouldn't bother me at all. I can't imagine a single reason why that would inf- interfere with my own spirituality. Uh, the worst forms of LDS leadership that I've ever encountered have always been from people who proudly identify themselves as heterosexual. How much worse could a gay leader screw things up? I don't know. But given the ostracism that gay people have faced down through the centuries and the, and the need that they've had to develop spirituality in conditions of isolation, I'd say they stand a better chance of understanding the importance of leaving the flock in order to search for one lost soul. And then there are issues like feminism, you know, or ordaining women. Is it up to me whether or not that happens? No, it's not up to me. And frankly, I don't really care because I'm not a woman and my wife isn't in the church. Um, but I was raised by a woman. I'm married to a woman. We had three children, all of them girls. My editor is a woman. Is a woman. Most of my grandchildren are girls. And frankly, I'm perfectly comfortable taking orders from women. I've been a, I've been a Mormon my entire life, and I know who does most of the work. Uh, and... Think about it. If the Relief Society had been in charge of it, Mountain Meadows would have almost certainly turned out differently. Yeah, yeah. You mentioned the 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 gay issue, having a gay bishop. The only thing that, that I see, first of all, let me say put it this way: I see this huge tension there if that would ever happen, and and that's that we have this rule of wearing just white shirts, right? Yeah. And and I think that uh, if we had a gay bishop. And we had gay leaders. I think that might be the first rule that changes. We might get some color in there. And I'm one that wears a purple shirt every Sunday or a pink shirt every Sunday. And I think it's kind of like this white Utah heterosexual male culture that we kind of create like these, these pseudo rules of, of how we dress and what we can say and the unwritten order of things. I think if we had some gay leaders, some of those things would very quickly dissipate and some of the more important things might come to the surface. Well, yeah. And who knows how little it would bother us in the long run. Um, but right now, it doesn't look like it's going to happen. There's nothing I can do about it except express my opinion. And I'm not, it's not up to me how the church works. It's only up to me how I work in the church. If I don't agree with something, I don't live it. It's as simple as that. Um, it, it's easy for me to blow that off because of the kind of person I am. But if you're a different kind of person, I can understand why it would be so troubling. Yeah. Let me, uh, let me ask this. You're, you talk about, you know, the things that, 
that you like about Mormonism or the, or the things that, you know, yeah, you're aware of these things maybe being a little agitating, but they don't bother you a whole lot. What are your favorite parts of Mormon? What are the things that you just love about the church? You mentioned earlier that there's parts of Mormonism you just love. What are some of those? What are some real big positive things within, within our faith? For me, it's, um, probably the social aspect of it. I mean, on a purely secular level, I love the sense of community. Actively participating in an LDS ward is like having a huge extended family around you. Um, you mean you help raise other each other's children, service projects, keep us invested in each other's lives. Other churches have elements of those things, but I can't think of one that promotes monthly visits of people to show up just to make sure if you're okay. Right. And I also, I mean, from a theological point, I also like the idea that God didn't create us as just another terrestrial species or a slightly smarter primate, that being his children isn't a metaphor or an analogy. We actually have eternal purposes beyond just seeing hallelujah at his feet for eternity. There is an eternal point to the genders, and I like that part. My least favorite part, though, are correlation, both mandated and implied. There's a stodginess in it. I taught a church lesson in high priest group one time where I I took the lesson and I retooled it as kind of something of my own because I really wanted to know how other people did this. And I led the discussion with a question, what do you do when you don't agree with church leaders? And all I got in response was cricket noises. And uh, I could sense this lack of comfort with the question. And finally somebody spoke up and said, well, I've never disagreed with a church leader, which is a pretty neat trick considering that they don't always agree with each other. Um, and if you haven't found something that makes you uncomfortable about the church or church leaders have claimed, then it's clearly you're not thinking hard enough because history has showed us that they've been wrong a time or two. So I, I take it you're not a giant supporter of blind obedience. Oh, no. Uh-uh. <laughs> I, don't, I don't do well with that. I, I have an overactive imagination and pretty much everything that comes in my head comes right out my mouth. I remember one time sitting in a sitting in church as the deacons were lining up to pass the sacrament, and I referred to the way that they were dressed as their, you know, they were dressed in their general authority starter kits. Um, because they'll have these suits and ties and doing their best to imitate what they've been told was the right way to do it. And uh, that comment wasn't appreciated, but it did get some laughs out of the other people around. So I, you've, you've kind of hit on this already, but what so the next few questions come from listeners and they've they wrote in on Facebook and they, I've got a few emails and things from people who I want to ask questions as well and and some of this comes from a more frustrated place than where I'm at but I want to ask these anyway so that at least the listeners get sure. a chance to hear your perspective on some of these but but the one the one listener asked how do you look the frustrating parts of Mormonism dead in the face and and still manage to to stay and to press on. How do you how do you because every week, I mean you're writing these articles and it's obvious that you see that sometimes we're just being silly and sometimes we're messing up and sometimes we're getting these things wrong. How do you see these frustrating parts of Mormonism staring right in the face and just keep showing up the next Sunday? Um I don't know, probably because those things don't bother me. And uh, I mean it's like asking somebody why their favorite color is blue. Um it just is. But on the other hand, there have been those times when I've wrestled with um, Mormonism and been unable to come to a, a decision about something or a conclusion that satisfied me. And so I just do what I did when I can't figure out how to work a Rubik's Cube. I throw it aside and keep going with something else. Um, it's, not, it's not easy, but the more you do it, the easier it will become by just not letting yourself be bothered by what other people think or what other people say. Are you, you know, when you sit in a church and, and something happens that, I mean, does your mind automatically click and you say, that would make a great next article that I'm going to write? And do you kind of pull out a notepad then and take some notes and things? And, <laughs> oh, yeah. And, uh, I mean, you know, are you always looking for new material in our three-hour block? People ask me what I do when I get writer's block. I mean, I've been doing this for 25 years. And they say, well, do you ever run out of ideas to write about? And I say, yeah. And they say, well, what do you do? I, I go to church. <laughs> There's always something going on there that uh, is worthy of, of a comment or two. But is the church true? The parts I believe in are. I don't need it all to be true, or even most of it, for the simple reason that it involves human beings. I mean, essays, the essay the church, the essays that the church put out, uh, well, a lot of Mormons remain unaware of them, um, really 
can be troubling for people who never really thought about those things. But it's proof that for nearly 200 years, Mormons have believed in and testified to things that weren't exactly true. We'll probably find out more of that in the future. Frankly, I think every religion will. From the beginning, religion has always had to give ground to scientific and social advancements. I mean, you, you take Galileo, for example. Not only did he prove that we live in a heliocentric solar system, but also that theological dogma can't deny scientific fact for long. And it's so you really have to find your own parts and then live your life like the rest of it doesn't matter. Because the truth of it is, it doesn't. You have to stop letting other people think, stop letting what other people think wind you up to the point where you miss the value in what there is. Belonging to a church, I mean, really, belonging to a church is like being married. There's lots of imperfections on both sides. Other people will give you all sorts of advice about what you should do or should not be doing in your marriage. Advice on how to get past these things or whatever. Uh, don't really know what they're talking about because they're not you. They don't feel your concerns. The advice will be based entirely on their own expectations and needs. And in the end, love is what matters. If you don't love the church, I mean, if, if there isn't something about it that you love and that you can focus on that instead of what you don't like, then you probably ought to leave because not only are you going to make yourself miserable, but other people around you too. Um, but it is comes down, it does come down to the difference between being right and being good. And it's amazing how often those two are not the same thing. But a lot of Mormons get raised to believe that all they have to do is be right and good will take care of itself, and that's not true. Do you see your your the articles you write in the humor that you use and in, in the way you kind of poke at Mormonism, do you see that in a sense as an expression of your love for the faith? I mean, let me put it this way, and I'll just say this from a personal standpoint. I get lots of criticism for the podcast that I do because I'm talking about the negative aspects of Mormonism. I'm talking about the, the, his, the history, and I'm validating how messy it is. I'm talking about you know how many paradoxes and contradictions that there are. And some people say, hey, don't talk about that stuff. All you're doing is drawing attention to things that are going to cause people to question further. And yet I don't see it that way. I see me as trying to move past all this crap and get to a place where we can deal with Mormonism more authentically, where people who know this information can have more peace in their life. And and I'm sure you get criticism as well for what you do in some, way, in some ways kind of along the same lines, that you're poking fun, you're showing kind of the – the frailties of at times of our faith. And yet in some ways I kind of see what you're doing as an expression of love in the same way that I would claim it. Or, do you feel that way or, or do you kind of parse out uh, your love for the faith and in, in the humor you have and you utilize in your articles? Yeah, I don't, um, <clears throat> I don't worry too much about the, the truth aspect of things or the negative aspects of things. So those tend to take care of themselves. Um, We'll find out in the future that some things we believe today aren't exactly just so. Uh, the question isn't whether or not we'll find those out. It's how we deal with them when we do. I had a had an uncle who was a real bigot, and it really distressed him when blacks got the priesthood. And you could sort of tell that that changed his attitude about the church quite a bit. Um, if gays are received in full fellowship in the LGBT community, um, will that stress some Mormons out? Oh, you bet it will. But it also gives us a reason to re-examine why we believe what we believe in the first place. So I actually think some good comes of it. And, um, you know, as far as people responding negatively to what I'm saying, I've, I've come to terms with that. Uh, it, most of the responses are positive. But there have been some interesting things that I've learned about the church in doing this writing. I mean, for example, most people think that Utah Mormons are the most intolerant version of Mormons when it comes to making fun of us. But my experience has been that's not true. Uh, the worst mail that I get, the angriest, most vitriolic mail, um, comes from Mormons in California, Washington, Virginia, Canada. Hmm. And it's they, they have this attitude that Mormons who live in the real world are somewhat superior to us country bumpkins here in Utah. But Mormons in Utah are comfortable are accustomed to Mormons like me. Everyone here has a crazy aunt or a drunk neighbor or a ward idiot who provides a broader view of faithful Mormons. We can't get away from them because they live right next door to us. Conversely, in the mission field, people like this largely stop coming to church and they fade into the dominant background of non-Mormons. And they typically don't live next door to the people who they go to church with. So there really is no need to make allowances for the, for the way your neighbors behave. 
Church is where you go to be with people who think like you do rather than to make accommodations for people who don't. And that's the conclusion I came to when I you know, got all this mail from more hypersensitive Mormons in the mission field. Let me uh, let me ask you a little bit about some of the criticism that you get. So I, I've heard the one story you've told about your interaction with President Hinckley when you, you poked a little fun at him and, and got a letter back uh, <laughs> uh, from his secretary and from him. But I want to ask you in terms of local leadership, have you gotten – over the course of your life, have there been, you know, bishops or state presidents or other leaders around you that at the local level who have kind of pushed back on you and, and kind of asked you to stop doing what you're doing or, or took you aside and, and gave you any flack for, for the stuff you do? I actually count um, a few general authorities as personal friends, and I have never been in official trouble with the church. Now, that's not to say that um, friends haven't asked me to be a little bit more careful about certain things. Um, at least talk to me and try to get my take on where I was coming from. But most of the time, if you get into trouble from leadership, it'll be local leadership. I had a stake president one time who called me in and, and uh, because I had come up with this plan to solve the problem that Mormons were having in the world with baptizing people of other faiths, you know, doing their temple work and baptizing them uh, for the dead. And, he was upset because in my column I came up with a program wherein I said that um, I'm just going to start a program called excommunication for the dead. If your ancestors have been baptized by Mormons and you don't want them to be that way, send me 200 bucks. I'll commit a sin by proxy and get them excommunicated. And uh, <laughs> he was he was bothered by that quite a bit. Um, and he quoted me. Uh, I think it was. Section 69 out of Doctrine and Covenants where it said not to take light the things that come from above. Well, everything comes from above. So what is off limits? And uh, we had a long conversation about this, this local leader and I, and he finally got frustrated and just bore his testimony. He said, I know the church is true. And I said, well, I agree with you, but what's that got to do with the fact that you and I are a couple of idiots? And that really sums it up for me. Um, you can have a difference of opinion about these things and still play nice together. As long as you realize that you're both fallible and the possibility that you're both wrong about things. Yeah, unfortunately, I don't know that everybody gets outside that bubble sometimes. I think some people are so set in thinking that that rigid paradigm they grew up in is the only and true Mormonism that's out there. And yeah. anybody who comes along that thinks a little differently, it, it kind of rubs them as, as you're kind of off the track and need fixing. We put so much value on what other people think. Um, Mormonism is a very hierarchical organization, and we want the validation of people above us, uh, which is why we do some of the things that we do. Uh, reading Sunstone years ago, and there was a quote that stuck in my mind where it said that, Catholics are taught that the Pope is infallible, but most Catholics don't really believe that. Mormons are taught that their leaders are fallible, but most Mormons don't really believe that. Right. And it's there's a lot to be said not only about leaders in that regard, but about ourselves as well, that we can't always rely on our opinions about uh, how we believe because they're being believed by a fallible creature. Um, a sense of humor really is just getting people, encouraging people to rethink the way that they do things. It's possible to get so immersed in what you're doing that you forget um, or, or you become oblivious to the problems that you cause. I mean, you look at Mormons who gather at the airport to welcome home a missionary, completely oblivious in the extremity of their joys, that they're inconveniencing a number of people and not really bringing a good opinion on the church in doing that, even though the church uh, back in the early 2000s sent out a letter and told people stop to stop doing that. They still do it. The You mentioned earlier being taken aside by a, a local leader who was kind of reminding you of, of this whole idea of making humor too much. And we kind of have these rules in the church, DNC 88-121, for example, talks about uh, ceasing from all light speeches, from all laughter. We've got covenants we make in the temple in regards to those kinds of things. Um, we hear it often, you know, at a leadership meeting or something like that, we're kind of reminded of this idea. And, and yet your, <clears throat> your, your personality obviously is somewhat juxtaposed to 
to this idea that this is something we don't do within Mormonism. Um, does that ever, I mean, I can't imagine it bothers you, but you probably have some kind of answer for that when, when people come to you or say such a thing. Um, yeah. And that is that I don't really care. Um, I'm going to be my kind of Mormon, <laughs> uh, whether they want it to or not. And it's easy to shake people up. We had a, several years ago, I've been living in this ward here in Harriman for the past 15 years. And several years ago, uh, we had somebody uh, being, you know, a boat being called to sustain them in a calling that they had. And it was, I think it was to be the, the bishop's executive secretary. And the guy who was being called was a friend of mine. And so when they asked for a sustaining show of hands, uh, when they said, uh, are there any opposed, I stuck my hand up. And that kind of brought the meeting to a screeching halt. And uh, I said, you know, I'm not voting against him having the job per se, but I've had that job before. It's a horrible job. I'm just trying to help him out. <laughs> and a lot of people laughed, but you could see those. Oh, I can imagine there were people that did not find uh, that funny. That kind of flatlined, which is a bonus, frankly, because they'll stay away from me. Right. We, we have these sacred rituals, right, right that, that we do a certain way. And if somebody interferes with those, I, I have a good friend who I consider to be an absolute active, faithful by the book kind of Latter-day Saint, but uh, he's got a good sense of humor and he went to the temple one time and while one of uh, our other ward members was receiving one of the ordinances, he reached his hand into that area and turned the light off. And <laughs> so, you know, it's those kinds of things that some people will laugh at, but others, when they see this interruption of, of our sacred ritual, they don't they don't tend to find those things funny. Yeah, I stopped worrying about <laughs> that. So, I mean, one of the... One of the biggest contributors to what I do as far as humor is that um, it's different when you're a police officer in Utah and you're LDS because you see your fellow Mormons at their absolute worst. And this is especially true in small communities where you go to church with the same people that you enforce the law on. And it gives you a real sympathetic view of what it was like to be a Roman soldier garrisoning the streets of Jerusalem at the time of Christ. Um, Here's the Lord's chosen people behaving in ways that uh, would shame the worst kind of people in the world. And so I had to find ways to sort of deal with that. Uh, When I first became a police officer out in Tooele County, one of the first people I arrested was a guy who I stopped for drunk driving. We ended up fighting in a ditch took me a while to get the handcuffs on him. I sat behind him in church the next Sunday. And you want, you, I mean, temples, <laughs> uh, you want something to really shake your temple experience? Get pulled through the veil by somebody you've arrested. <laughs> so that's happened to you, huh? Oh, yeah. Wow. Yeah, that would catch you off guard when uh, when you get pulled through and, you know, you glance up at the person on the other side of the curtain. Uh, didn't, faze, <laughs> didn't faze me a bit. <laughs> I, I bet it phased him a little, though. Uh, probably a little bit. But, um, <laughs> he probably had a little bit more shame and guilt than you did. Yeah, when I when I first started doing this, people would ask me, and I think I mentioned this at the fair conference, um, if writing this stuff didn't cause me concern uh, about church leaders, because at the time I started doing it, there had been other Mormons, Mormon writers who'd been disciplined by the church for challenging the church's theology. And I didn't, I didn't really have a beef with the theology, because... I don't care what you believe. It's really more about how you believe it, because that speaks to how you treat other people. But uh, people kept asking me that question uh, because they'd seen these intellectuals and university professors get excommunicated or disfellowshipped. And so when they'd ask me, man, aren't you afraid of church leaders? I understood where they were coming from, that if the church was going to do something about these really smart people, it was only a matter of time before they got around to doing something about an idiot, so maybe I should be a little bit more afraid than I was. And I got tired of being asked that, so I wrote a column and said I wasn't afraid of church leaders because they're old. Um, I was pretty sure I could beat President Hinckley up if it came to that sort of thing. And I also said I could beat up the Pope, and Mother Teresa couldn't take a punch. And Billy Graham was sick and old, and Jerry Falwell was short and dumpy, so really, why would anyone be afraid of church leaders? And <laughs> to me, it was just kind of a joke, you know. And but it did take me, you know, a little bit to understand what I'd just done. By then, the column was already in the paper, and I was a little nervous about how people would react to that. But they didn't react at all. Nobody said a word. It was just dead silence to what was probably most most Mormons would agree is a pretty salacious 
thing to say. Um, but they didn't get upset about that. What they got upset about was that several weeks later, I wrote a column where you could tell the difference between God and Satan based on the types of pets they have. God had a dog named Vern, and Satan had a cat. I got all this mail from cat owners uh, telling me what a bastard I was for, you know, being so mean to cats. <laughs> and uh, I, got, I got a letter from a Baptist seminary. This guy who was there wrote to tell me that God did not have a dog named Vern. And I wrote him back and said, well, I guess that all depends on how you interpret the Bible. And he wrote back and said he's read the Bible a whole bunch of times. There's nothing in there about a dog named Vern. And, and uh, so I wrote him back and I said, okay, well, maybe it's in the Book of Mormon. Then. <laughs> and back comes this letter, oh, you're one of those. And so, I mean, sometimes making people upset really is um, what I'm trying to do, as long as I'm making the right people upset. Writing columns is like going out on idiot safari. You don't even have to agree with what you're writing. It's just the noise you use to drive the game out into the open. And it uh, works phenomenally well with people who take themselves way too seriously. Right, right. Uh, but I did get a, I did get hauled in for that, saying I could beat President Hinckley up. Uh, my stake president at the time pulled me in and said, you know, Robert, you said that you could beat up our prophet, President Gordon B. Hinckley. And I said, well, yeah, no, I can and uh, it was true. I mean, if the church is true, so is that. And he said, well, I said, you know, I was just making a joke. It's still funny, right? And he said he didn't think so. And um, so I went home and I wrote President Hinckley a letter of apology on the off chance that he was offended. And I got a letter back from his executive secretary who told me not to worry about it. He discussed it with President Hinckley and who wanted me to know that I should have good luck, have fun, basically. And so... I take that letter with me whenever I get called in, which is, doesn't happen. It just, I mean, it really doesn't. Gotcha, gotcha. So you're a white male. You live in Utah, and the Brethren just filled uh, the three vacancies with, with other white Utah males. Do you think your chances are diminishing of being called into the 12? No, it sounds like they're still, you know, after my sort. <laughs> that's right. I just thought at some point this pattern has to break, and so if that's the case, then then your chances were becoming slimmer and slimmer. But you're right. If this is the pattern we keep following, then you're uh, you're prime pickings. All I have to do is live long enough. That's right. <laughs> Probably won't happen. Yeah, I mean, you're getting to the point here. I mean, if they, they call you in the 70, then, you know, they think they retire those guys at the age of 70. And so in 10 more years or so, then, you know, that wouldn't be a long time to fill. But in the 12, uh, yeah, as long as you can live long enough, you're good. Yeah, it's a death sentence. Right. Called in death. <laughs> it and, is. Uh, um, um, yeah, you get lots of critics who who jump on the general authorities, but – when you think about it, you and me get to retire and play with our grandkids, and those guys got to get on an airplane, airplane and fly all around the world. Uh, yeah, I'm, not, plus I, I'm not so sure that they don't have the short end of the stick. Yeah, plus I can sharpen knives in church and listen to, you know, Pink Floyd on the headphones. Yeah. So they, they don't get to do that. No, no. No, they got to sit up on the stand and stay awake. So. Yeah, but, you know, right now I have the best church job. I wouldn't trade it for being an apostle. What is your I work in the nursery, and I love it. How long have you been there? Because you've talked in your articles about being in the nursery for a while. I've been in the nursery for a year now. Okay. What were you doing and, before that? Uh, I can't remember. Okay. <laughs> um, oh, yeah, I was a, uh, sometimes I taught high priest group, but um, and I've been a Sunday school teacher. But the nursery is great because it's the gospel boiled down to its nuts and bolts. Jesus doesn't want you to hit another kid in the head with a Fisher-Price truck. You don't have to worry about the minutiae. You just don't hit each other in the head or bite each other. And the, it's a lot more edifying in there. I told the bishop when he came around to check on me that I like the nursery because I'd rather smell crap in there than listen to it in high priest group. <laughs> and it's the only place that the handbook leaves room to uh, take snacks. Oh, yeah, you bet. <laughs> and, we, and we don't just have snacks. On Fast Sundays, we have pancakes. <laughs> pancakes. On yeah, Fast Sunday, awesome. just to rub it in on the adults who are trying to uh, trying to keep those kinds of promises that they're supposed to, right? Yeah, so I go over to the window in the nursery door and <laughs> eat pancakes while people are walking by. <laughs> I can just picture you through the little window uh, stuffing your face with pancakes while these hungry people with halitosis are walking <laughs> by the door. <laughs> Yeah, that's good not for you. That's good. I had they won't even lick their lips. They're so afraid of breaking their fast. Right. <laughs> and with the smell of syrup in the air. 
right. Uh, uh, so I know I had one listener write me, and I know that you know you write in your articles about attending church. But I had one person write me and ask. I mean, does this guy really attend, or or is this? Oh, some, hell yeah. So are, do you go every week? Yeah, way more than I want to. <laughs> I was going to ask you if you look forward to it. I, I'll, I'll just say that me personally, I certainly feel stress at church. I certainly am bothered by the things that are said. I certainly uh, feel like lots of things that are taught really aren't things we really believe as a as a religion. And you know, things get all screwed up at church. But yet, every Saturday night and Sunday morning, I can't wait for it. It's almost like putting myself through torture. But uh, you're, you're joking that you go a lot more than you want to. Yeah, it's it's true. I mean, you can be you can sit there and be bored by people. I mean, sometimes I think it's a actual tenet of the church to choose the most boring speakers they can find out there. Um, that's being a little bit too critical. Well, I don't think so. I think it's pretty true. <laughs> it's being a little critical though of people who are probably terrified to be up there and they're just trying to get through it. But um, you know, I, I can easily block out the things that I don't like or don't care about. So. I mean, I take a briefcase full of stuff to do. I've got a uh, I've got a good friend who puts a Bluetooth in his ear and turns on my podcast during uh, <laughs> as soon as the sacrament, as soon as the sacrament portion of, of the service is over, while the other people are giving talks, he's listening to podcast on his uh, on his Bluetooth. <laughs> so there's lots of ways to get through it. I you know the the brethren recently, I think it was a talk maybe in conference or some training session that said that you know in the meetings we should put away our iPads and our tablets and on smartphones. But I don't. I don't see this as any different than uh, President Iring talking about his dad. His dad said that you know if there was ever a sermon he didn't like, he would just preach a sermon in his head on the subject that was better. And for me, uh, you know, I drowning out whatever boring talk is being given, if that's the case, and finding something more edifying and enlightening. I don't see the negative. No, I don't either. I mean, you show up to worship with your with your neighbors, and your presence there probably helps them, and they don't know that you're thinking about something else. And I'd say we didn't volunteer for this, but we did, right? Yeah, well, I don't know about that. Okay. <laughs> um, I, I believe that I was a conscientious objector in the war in heaven. Okay. Hey, I'll do this, guys, but let me put my foot down for a minute and just tell you this is this is not going to go well. <laughs> That's good. I think sometimes that Lucifer, rather than kind of the, the scenario we paint and how we teach it, I think Lucifer perhaps looked at his own character and said, man, the chances of me getting back are slim. I think I'm going to take this other route. Yeah. Oh, that's pro. That's probably true. And, and there is a lot of benefits to admitting that you're a celestial spirit. Right. I mean, suddenly you don't have... It's a low expect. It's a low bar. You can do that, right? Yeah, you know, if they tell the... People see you leaving church early. You say, hey, celestial spirits have to stay for the entire three-hour block. Right. I'm just here for sacrament, and I'm out. Yeah, celestial spirits get to go home and eat. <laughs> Look, I'm okay with the lower middle kingdom, right? Yeah. I need a T-shirt, celestial spirit, and proud of it. And, and honestly, right, we're having fun here, and God promises us that all three of the kingdoms are better than this. So why, yeah. why try a whole bunch when something better is lying ahead no matter That's what? That's right. I mean, where's the lose-lose? Right. Besides, you know, behaving pays off later, misbehaving pays off now. <laughs> That's true. And if it's better there, it pays off later too. Yeah, right. <laughs> so, so a couple of serious questions and, and, and you're welcome to throw in some humor to this as well, but I'm hoping to get a serious answer from you and, and, and not have you use humor to kind of sidestep this question. But if you were in the Quorum of the Twelve, if you were called in, to that leadership calling. And, and let's just set aside for a minute that Jesus from time to time shows up in the room and is telling you what, what you got to do. Let's just assume that, Hey, you're in the room and you've got as much say on what direction things go. Hypothetically, it, not that it works that way. And, um, when you have these kinds of, what are things that if you could change, you know, if you could just name a few things, you said, Hey, you know what, if it was up to just Robert Kirby, what kind of things in the church would you, would you say, Hey, we got to do this different. I would change um, how we are taught the gospel. Uh, I would add into the curriculum all of the stuff that we've struggled with in the past so that we raise a generation of Mormons who hear it from us first before they're hearing it from other people, um, that we become a bit more self-effacing about what it is that we do. I mean, I've heard rumors that there were discussions in the Quorum of Twelve about, you know, these essays before they ever happened, and there were several members who said, you know, let's just let it out, keeping it a secret or... Not addressing it causes us more problems in the long run, so why not just own up to it? And uh, I think they actually won 
that particular argument. But I would I would change the curriculum to include um, <clears throat> other Mormons who feel marginalized. Right now, <clears throat> the church teaches around the core doctrine of having an eternal family, and <clears throat> most everything addresses that issue. How do you get an eternal family? Well, these are the things you have to do. Go to church, pay tithing, all this other stuff. Well, there are a lot of Mormons, single parent uh, mothers and fathers, who go to church, and they hear this, and they don't have a celestial family already. And there's never a lot said about that. I mean, I look around the, my LDS ward, and I know there are people who um, could come to church, but they don't because their spouse doesn't. So in my ward, there's me and one other guy who, you know, older Mormons who attend church despite the fact that their spouse doesn't. And to sit in classrooms and hear um, the, you know, eternal family mantra, you know, repeated over and over and over again doesn't do really anything for me uh, as much as it probably does for other people. Besides, you know, that gets me thinking about what is an eternal family. You know, that you get your children again and you get to live together in the celestial kingdom. Well, that sort of flies in the face that these are actually God's children. And your children are just your brothers and sisters that you're practicing parenthood on. Because when you get to heaven, they're not going to be kids anymore. And, you know, it's those questions come to me um, when I start to feel marginalized. So I would have lessons that address those issues. I would address in realistic terms the issue of homosexuality and how we should treat them. Um, right now, we don't have lessons like that. What we have are just a grudging acceptance that they exist and we should love them. But what about parents who have gay children, who are raising teenagers who've come out? Um, how does the church help them? Um, it should help them, I believe, by teaching church members the proper way to love people who are different than that. I, uh, you talked about singles and us preaching on the family. I, I know a single sister who on several occasions has told me every time she reads the proclamation uh, to the world um, that she doesn't even see herself in it, that here's this document that we're always as Latter-day Saints holding up and, and using to reinforce our belief system. And yet here's this single sister who says, yeah, I read that document and I don't even see myself in this plan. Yeah. Well, I've told um, various church leaders before, you know, that I already don't have a celestial family. So you're going to have to find something else to scare me with because that doesn't work. Um, anything else that uh, off the top of your head that you say, hey man, if I could, if I could, if it was just up to Robert Kirby, I'd fix this. No, that's probably pretty much the thing that that I find most troubling or that I struggle with. If I struggle with anything at all at church, you know, if I tune out a speaker, it's usually because what I'm hearing from them doesn't apply to me. Have you ever served in a bishopric, or or yeah. do you kind of just make it a point to kind of stay off to the side no, and, and kind of give these guys? Go ahead. I served in two bishoprics. Gotcha. I know you make you make kind of jokes of giving everybody a hard enough time that they just leave you alone. But uh, I was curious if, if you'd ever broken that rule and, and found yourself uh, on the other side of the, of the table. Well, I've had some very understanding bishops, and they know that they figured out fairly quickly that if they wanted to get me to behave, they had to just saddle me with some responsibilities, and I'd conform well enough to at least do the job. But um, it's amazing how much work you can get out of just by not wearing a tie to church. <laughs> That's true. Or in my case, wearing a purple shirt. Yeah, right. <laughs> but who got the last laugh? Now you're in the nursery eating pancakes. Oh, yeah, and I don't have to wear a shirt in there, and I can pay three-year-old kids to walk on my back. See, now you're painting a pretty picture. You just told me you're not wearing a shirt in the nursery while eating pancakes with syrup while kids walk on your back. <laughs> not, not I think the listener right now is, is thinking that through. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I'm trying to think offhand if I've got, I've got a few other things I just wanted to ask you. Uh, let's just see your politics. Somebody asked me where you lean politically. I, I would assume you're kind of a liberal moderate, but, uh, just where does Robert Kirby fall? Are you, uh, are you a Rush Limbaugh, Glenn Beck conservative? Are you a, uh, a, uh, Clinton, Obama liberal? Where do you fall on things? I'm more of a liberal. Okay. And I kind of, I kind of thought as much just from your writings. I find too that having, I used to be a very conservative, uh, and I don't know if I want to say Republican, as I would just use the word conservative. I used to listen, listen to Rush Limbaugh and Glenn Beck every single day. And as I've kind of gone through my own faith transition over the last five years, I've found that I've become much more moderate uh, in my thinking and, and willing to kind of listen to both sides and realize that there's there's truth and error on both sides. Oh, yeah, that's true. I mean, I'm a registered Democrat, but I think that probably happens only because I live in Utah. 
Uh, I'm a conservative Democrat, a blue dog Democrat. And if I lived anywhere else, I'd probably be considered a liberal Republican. Let me uh, let me perhaps kind of finish off with this one. Let's just pretend for a minute Robert Kirby has his own seer stone. And uh, you put it in a hat, Robert, and you bury your face into it to exclude all light. Uh, and you're looking into the future of Mormonism. You talked about, like, feminist issues a little bit. You talked a little more about uh, singles in the church and, and the LGBT issue and, and other things. Do you see, you know, any things that you could say, hey, I'm, I'm pretty confident going forward that, that this change is going to happen. Do you see any of that uh, within Mormonism? Would you like to guess that? Um, not really. I mean, I never really looked that far into the future beyond the, the issues that you just mentioned. But, <clears throat> I mean, you're going to have to admit that sooner or later, um, Utah Mormonism is not going to be exported the way it was when I was younger, that it's more going to be more and more a global church. And the things that meant so much to Mormons in the past, like our pioneer ancestors and descended from LDS royalty, is going to mean nothing um, to the people who make up the predominant population of the church. And I would really like to see that happen. Uh, when I was a missionary, basically we were we were exporting Utah Mormonism rather than the gospel per se. And all these people in different cultures are going to have their own faith-promoting people and figureheads. And, I mean, put your shoulder to the wheels. It has a different meaning outside of Utah. Yeah, I uh, I think that there was a perfect storm at that time when that happened. I think that people really welcomed that kind of Americana, that kind of culture that we were, that we were sending out. And, and I know I, I joined the church as a teenager in Ohio and I moved here to Santa Clara near St. George about eight months ago. And it's been kind of a, a shock to me. I mean, I've been in the church 18, 19 years. I feel like I've got a pretty good grasp of the church and I come out here and it's, it's, it is a different culture there. As you're pointing out, you know, people are often falling back on their last name being the last name of a pioneer and they're telling you that heritage stock. And for me coming from Ohio, that means very little to me. You know, the, the, sure. my membership in the church is, you know, what am I doing and not what my grandfather or great grandfather did because they weren't even Mormons. Right. It's not, it's not your tradition. I, I mean, I, I went to England last month with my wife and I went to the actual village where my ancestors were living when the Mormons found them and converted them and that they left from there to go to Zion. And uh, I was hoping for some sort of experience that would um, allow me to connect with them across the centuries, but I didn't really, I didn't really find that. Um, what I found was, you know, why did they leave this place? I mean, everything was so green there and lush, and I'm sure there were, they had problems that they were trying to get away from. They were answering Brigham's call to come to Zion and help build up the kingdom of God. Uh, but it started me thinking what they must have been wondering when they crested immigration pass and looked out right. over what they had given up right. the green fields of England for. Uh, and I'm astonished that they just didn't keep going. Right. right. And we paint, right. We paint this picture that we're all, you know, we do the same thing with American history, right? That all the, the people during the revolutionary war were just absolutely committed. Meanwhile, you know, historical facts show that many of them were just looking for a paycheck, uh, just like the rest of us and doing the things that we do. And, uh, we like to paint this picture that they're all going to Zion and they're just super ecstatic to get there. But as you're pointing out, I think their view of what they were going to in Zion and then to be walking through the desert, uh, to be walking through this barren land to get to the Great Salt Lake, there had to have been times where they kind of said, hey, man, what did I just get myself into? Right. And we were, you know, as far as that pioneer stuff, we really ought to get over ourselves about it. Um, I mean, there are two sides to every valiant pioneer story out there. You have, on the one hand, the handcart companies were so desperate to get to Zion and get to building up the Lord's kingdom that they were willing to brave, you know, willing to endure the tragedies that befell them. When in truth is, if they knew they were going to lose their legs to frostbite, they probably would have waited, you know, before starting out on the plains. And there are lessons to be learned in our failures that are every bit as valuable as lessons to be learned in our successes or our strengths. Right. And, and we all come from heritage, you know, we all have a heritage with people in our genealogy, our family tree, our grandfathers, and, and perhaps our 15th great grandfather and grandmothers who, who have made sacrifices and done hard things. And I think sometimes we paint this picture like Mormon pioneers did this impossible thing and, and it can't even be compared to anything else anybody else did. But in reality, I think 
when we go into Africa with the gospel, when we go into Australia, when we go into South America, we ought to appreciate that these people, their ancestors have made sacrifices in, in various times as well. No, oh, absolutely. And um, we need to respect that every bit as much as we respect our own heritage. Yeah, yeah. I appreciate it. Um, just trying to think offhand, what is uh, what article is Robert Kirby working on right now? What's going to come out here in the next few days that's going to make me chuckle? I have no idea. I'll think <laughs> well, you, you better get the church then. And, <laughs> and Robert, it's the 27th, so you've got one more Sunday of this month, but then this Pancake Fast Sunday is just around the corner. Yeah, maybe we'll have bacon this time. Bacon. <laughs> I like that too. Bacon, bacon is good any Sunday. Yeah. I don't know that bacon, bacon's one of those things that, um, I think we could eat it all the time and not, you know, obviously we pay the price for it, but we would oh, enjoy yeah. the meal. Uh, but there's lots of companies out there that try to make bacon toothpaste and ch- chocolate covered bacon. Uh, None real. of those things work. It's just gotta be the real thing. Yeah, it's like meat that's candy. Right. <laughs> Right. It really is. Uh, well, there's another thing you and I have got in common. We both love bacon. Yeah. Uh, Robert Kirby, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. So much appreciate you and, and all you do. And honestly, you, I, I know you write the things you do to, to get a chuckle and to, and to certainly, you know, reach out to, to people and, and make people laugh and make their day kind of just have them kind of look at themselves and look at their culture and, and hopefully get a laugh out of it a little bit. But in some ways too, you're also one that, that me and other, um, transitioning Mormons look to and say, man, thank goodness somebody like that's got a voice and, and he's writing about these things so that it, it kind of validates in a way the fact that w- the things that we're frustrated over are legit, but it also kind of calls for us to chuckle about it as well and to, to move on and to, to find some way to find peace with that stuff. And I just want to say thank you. Well, thanks. If there's an altruistic reason for what I do, I think it's to appeal to Mormons like myself, uh, that they don't have to leave the church to be happy, that um, there's a place for us here as well. And we don't have to, to leave because we feel like we're being run off or because we feel like we have to get away from things. Amen. Uh, I feel the same way. Yeah. Um, appreciate you so much. Thank you for being on today. All right. Never he